Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Lisa Heineman, co-host of New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies, part of the New Books Network. Thanks for joining us. Utopian experiments often promise women's liberation and then add to their burdens. Communist China was no exception. Women now in their 80s or 90s, who survived violence and famine during the Civil War, subsequently experienced the excitement of activism and of gaining recognition for their work. But in the first decade of communist rule, they also struggled to raise large families, They were pushed into full-time agricultural labor with no relief from what was already a full-time occupation of needlework, and they experienced crushing food shortages with a great leap forward. Only a dwindling remnant of witnesses to this era remain, and so we're lucky that Gail Hershatter, together with collaborator Gao Xiaoshan, interviewed 72 of them for her new book, The Gender of Memory, Rural Women and China's Collective Past, which came out with University of California Press in 2011. The book is a thoughtful meditation on women's experience, on how gender shapes memory, and on what remains irretrievable even to the most conscientious historian. Above all, it's a testament to the anonymous rural women who were mobilized to modernize China. Let's hear from the author. Hi, Gail. I'm glad to have you here on the line today. I have today Gail Hershatter, author of The Gender of Memory, Rural Women and China's Collective Past. And I'm thrilled to have her on the show. This is a book I just adored. I love this book. And I hope you'll enjoy hearing her talk about it. Um, Gail, I wonder if uh, you can introduce us a little bit to yourself. Tell us what got you interested in Chinese history and the history of gender and sexuality. Sure, I'd love to. I am of the Vietnam War generation. Those were my high school and college years. And I got interested in Asia because the United States was involved in a war there. And that was also high school and college, the time that I noticed that I'd been told very little, really, growing up about anything having to do with Asia. What there was of a portrayal of China had to do with what I think of as uh, primary colors representations, that is, red peril, yellow hordes, blue-clad ants, that is a lot of people dressed all alike working on gigantic construction projects, and no people with faces that you could tell anything about. And partly because of the war, the Vietnam War, and partly because I uh, was a college student when first the U.S. ping-pong team and then Richard Nixon went to China and there was this big explosion of publicity about China, um, I got very interested in following out what it was I had been missing all of those years. And so as a college student, I started taking um, Chinese language and Chinese history and Chinese art and so forth. I was a student at Hampshire College in the first class there. And so that meant because there wasn't much China-related material at Hampshire that I actually traveled all around the five-college area in Western Massachusetts taking classes. Uh, At the time, like everybody else in the U.S., I had a passport that said it was not good for travel to China, and my biggest desire through my late teens and early 20s was to be able to go and look for myself. 
but it wasn't, I did visit China in 1975 with a small delegation of uh, U.S.-China Friendship Association activists for three weeks, but it wasn't really possible for me to go there and study until after diplomatic relations were established in 1979. By that time, I was a graduate student at Stanford, and I went and lived in the Chinese city of Tianjin for two years, doing dissertation research and learning about the huge divergence between anything that I had read about China and anything that happened to be going on at that moment. It was a moment of tremendous ferment and political reevaluation in the wake of Mao Zedong's death and the Cultural Revolution. And I was living in a dorm with Chinese students, many of whom were not what we would think of as conventional college age. They were often in their late 20s, and they'd been out in the countryside or in factories, uh, sometimes for 10 years because of the Cultural Revolution and the policies of sending uh, young people out to work before they could possibly qualify for university. And so they were very socially experienced, and they knew a lot about conditions in different parts of China, and I would say my most profound education was from them. It's really fascinating, um, an unusual way to, to sort of have to create your own course of study. Um, and so you, you went from then uh, doing your doctoral work. Um, you've written a couple of prior books, um, which are very much standards in the field um, having to, uh, of Chinese women's history. What made you want to um, study women in particular? Well, in that way, I'm also, of course, a product of the 1960s and 1970s in the United States and the second wave of feminism, the women's liberation movement, and in the wake of that, the rise of women's studies. My training is in history, but like everyone who got interested in uh, women and their historical experience in that generation, that wasn't what my training was in. We kind of made it up as we went along. When I went to Tianjin in the first place, I thought I was going to go to try to find out something about how women workers had fared there before the revolution, before 1949. And I had studied a lot about women workers in the bigger city of Shanghai, farther to the south, as a graduate student. And then I got to North China and discovered that really women had gotten into the labor force much later. And in fact, at one point, there were more women working as sex workers in Tianjin than there were as industrial workers in the 1920s, according to a social survey done then. So I ended up doing my first book about the history of the working class in Tianjin, in which women played some role, but not the major role. And then I went on to try to write a history of sex workers. And I centered that in Shanghai, where there was more material available, more of a paper trail left behind, and tried to talk about the ways that prostitution was used by reformers and revolutionaries and conservatives and new urban dwellers to talk about problems of modernity that were being negotiated in the in the 50 years uh, before the Chinese Revolution and the establishment of the People's Republic of China. And then how that revolution took the elimination of prostitution as one of the signs of its success. We're going forward to a new China. We're not taking this shameful exploitative practice with us. And then while I was doing the research for that book, which was Dangerous Pleasures, which came out in the late 1990s, prostitution came roaring back very visibly in China as a social problem in the years of the post-Mao economic reform. So the book got very long and involved and ended up uh, dealing partly with how prostitution is discussed in the present, as it was in the early 20th century, 
as a link and a sign of bigger social problems and a means for people to debate what they want modernity to be and look like. Mm. And then you um, moved eventually uh, to the work that we're going to talk about today, some of which is based on oral history, some of which are from the late 1990s. Uh, so the book that, that we're going to talk about today, uh, The Gender of Memory, is the product of, of many, many years um, of, of collection of interviews with, with rural women. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit how you moved into this work. Sure. Probably with me, every project leads in some way to the next project, although I can't always see it at the time. Uh, when I finished spending a very long time thinking about sex workers in Shanghai, I really felt strongly that I wanted to get out of the cities and do something that was based in the Chinese countryside. Until quite recently, until the late 70s and even more so the mid-90s, most of the Chinese population lived in the countryside. It was something like 80% during the Mao years. It's now down to something more like 50%, but most of that decline is quite recent. And I had noticed at the same time while teaching courses that talked about the post-revolutionary period as well as the pre-revolutionary period, that when I tried to talk about the early years of the People's Republic of China, the 1950s, any time up to the Cultural Revolution in the mid-1960s, there was just a complete lack, an almost complete lack, of interesting teaching material to use, that what you got to hear was the names of campaigns. So land reform, marriage reform, three anti, five anti, joint state-private enterprises, um, hundred flowers campaign, uh, anti-rightist campaign, great leap forward, et cetera, et cetera which is a little bit, even though the names are more colorful, like reading the congressional record and trying from that to divine what is in fact going on in the United States. And it showed when I taught, you know, that just seemed like a dead space. And I, I thought, you know, the material for writing a social and cultural history of that period um, has got to exist somewhere. Some of it is probably live material, that is, people's memories of those years. But by this time, it was the late 1990s, uh, and I thought, the mid-1990s, actually, I thought, um, this material is not going to be around for very much longer. So it was some combination of wanting to get out of the city, get as far away from centers of power as I, as I could and still have access to people, um, and sit down with them and say, okay, what was that revolution to you? What do you remember it to have been? Now, women are doubly marginalized with respect to the main story of the Chinese revolution by virtue, rural women, by virtue both of location and gender. The state said a lot in the early 1950s about what it wanted women to do and be and how it wanted a new marriage law that gave people more control over the conditions of their own marriage, and it wanted to mobilize women to come out of the home, cast off what were then called feudal ideas, and go to work in the fields uh, to contribute their labor to building a socialist countryside. So there's a lot of that kind of material, what women are supposed to do. But what happened when a state initiative hit the ground, how people interpreted it, how it got filtered through lo local practices, how it modified local practices, and at what kind of pace 
we had much less of an idea about. The only personal accounts we ended up having of the 1950s, and those were um, also quite recent, were ones written by urban intellectuals who had been sidelined or criticized in, in Chinese political campaigns in the cities. So uh, the most basic questions, what happened when? What do you remember as having happened? How did your daily life change? How did your working life change? Um, how did your sense of community change? Did anything change? These kinds of things. Uh, I couldn't find any material that dealt with that, so I decided I wanted to try to collect some. Now, I was really lucky that very early on, as I was getting interested in rural areas, I met someone who became my research collaborator, although she's in China and she's based in the city of Xi'an and she is writing her own work for a Chinese audience that addresses somewhat different kinds of questions. She's the person to whom this book is dedicated. Her name is Gao Xiaoxian, and she is someone who has who spent a large part of her professional career working for the provincial branch of the All-China Women's Federation in the province of Shanxi. These were kind of official advocates for women. But in her case, she really was an advocate for women who often um, exceeded the, what the Women's Federation was really supposed to be doing, which was transmitting party state policy to local populations. And she really felt strongly when we first met in the early 1990s that if you really wanted to understand the situation women are in now and what needs to be done for them now, you have to have some sense of what preceded now, especially within their lifetimes and the lifetimes of their mothers, and what that last big social project, the, the communist revolution, had changed and left intact in the countryside. So she and I teamed up, and I was extremely lucky. She has very good contacts all over the province of Shanxi because of her work, um, and she grew up there. She grew up in the city of Xi'an, but she spent a lot of her childhood years living with her grandmother in the countryside, and then almost as soon as she came back to the city to go to junior high and high school, the Chinese Cultural Revolution broke out, and she got sent back down to the countryside uh, to, in fact, her father's ancestral village, where she stayed for quite a few years. So she was very comfortable moving around the countryside, and we started going on these interviewing trips. And although this book uses also a lot of published material and material from local archives in Shanxi, uh, you're quite right that the heart of it is the oral histories of these 72 women that we ended up collecting between 1996 and 2006. And this, um, you know, this sort of sense of personality, both of your collaboration and, of course, of the voices of the women themselves is you know, part of what makes the book so incredibly effective, um, especially coming into a decade and, um, and a region that is rural China at all, even apart from the particular province you're studying, where, where we just have so little. Um, and I wonder if we could turn to, to some of those women's voices. You start with some of the, um, the older women who you interview who were already young adults in the age of the Civil War and, um, and even the occupation by Japan. And they talk about their life before um, what they call the liberation, that is when, when communism came to their region, which is important for setting up what comes next. Mm -hmm. Well... It was interesting talking to these older women, one of whom was in her 90s at the time of the interview in the mid-1990s, and several of whom mm -hmm. were in their late 80s, because as you said, they'd spent their childhood and their young adulthood in circumstances that 
make the present seem to them like a kind of a paradise uh, in which there were local warlords, there were local bandits, there was a Japanese invasion, and although this particular area was not occupied by Japan, there were many groups of soldiers marching in and out, and the Japanese not far away in the next province. And so uh, in addition to that, there were several major famines in the region that sent people out on the road, and some of the people that I interviewed remembered being on the road as in, in their late teens, one woman uh, fleeing famine with her husband and sleeping in a temple at night and sleeping, in fact, on what she discovered the next morning was a tomb and then waking up to find actually her mother was next to her who was also a famine refugee who'd fled from a separate village and whom she had lost track of. So there are these stories that almost... Um, they would almost be melodramatic if they weren't so finely narrated. They're, they're not formulaic. They all have their own details, but the level of drama and life-threatening situations is so high um, that you can understand why what happened in the 1950s, even with all of its hardships, which I'll talk about more later, seemed to them like the dawning of, of a completely different kind of world, just because there was no more civil war and and no more regular famine that sent people out on the road and so forth. Um, the kind of central uh, interesting thing for me about their stories, however, you know, I'm, I was talking to them in the 1990s and the early 2000s about things that in some cases had happened in the 19, late 1920s, the 1930s, the 1940s. And so, of course, the stories they tell are very much affected by everything that's happened in the interim. And one of the things that happened in the interim is the revolution arrived, and among other things it brought was it brought a language, provided a kind of vocabulary for describing one's past and one's past suffering. And doing what was called speaking bitterness, which is a kind of, you could think of it as just complaining, but it's complaining in a particular mode, uh, talking about how your past life and hardships were shaped very much by forces beyond your control and forces of exploitation. In the process of learning how to speak bitterness, one of the things these women learned how to say was, before 1949, we never even thought of ourselves as people. When someone would come to the door and say, is anyone home? We would say, no one is home if there was no man home. Women didn't even regard themselves as people. So I started to poke at that formulation a little bit, and I found that in local dialect, Saying no one is home and saying there's not a man in the house um, meant virtually the same thing. That is, if, if somebody came to the door and there was no man at home, they'd say, you know, no one's here. Not as a means of denigrating themselves, but just because of the way the dialect terms worked. So that was one interesting thing. Uh, a second interesting thing was that while proclaiming themselves to be non-people with no sense of themselves, who were shut up at home, who never went outside. They would also tell me these stories about being out on the road as famine refugees and sleeping on tombs and having all kinds of picaresque adventures um, with considerable hardship. And then they would also talk about being left at home to do the farming and uh, do the weaving and do the spinning and produce things to sell to pay the taxes because their husbands or the men in their families had been conscripted or had died of illness, or were, otherwise, or were away looking for work, or were otherwise absent. So for someone 
who says no one is home. They were extremely active, and they weren't just active at home. They were, in fact, out on the road a lot. I, I, I think part of what's happened here is that the revolutionary story of speaking bitterness of before and after has gotten construed as before we were shut up in rooms, now we move through village space. And in fact, the details of those stories absolutely pull in a different direction. And they talk a lot about um, having been extremely active over and over again in supporting themselves and often saving their own lives. So the, the tendency to create a pre-revolutionary self, an image of a pre-revolutionary self that uh, is not all that capable and is shut up by social um, forces, you know, confined at home, turns out to be something that, that has to be read as a representation, you know, a very powerful one, but not one that tells the full story of their own lives. You know, these ties between the, the before and after, um, as, as they put it, um, and you sort of reflect in your work, extend in a lot of different directions, right? Because when you talk then about what happens after the revolution, um, activists, people who were very much casting themselves in the new mo mode of activism, um, also use a language or draw on notions of, of virtue, all right, that you also trace to a much longer history. So this, this kind of before and after blurring um, seems to extend there as well. And some of your very interesting protagonists early on are these women who maybe were widowed during the hardships of, of the, you know, the, the era of conflict, and then as widows became kind of these, these virtuous activists. And I wonder if you could talk about them a little bit. Sure. Um the very first person we went to interview in the first year we were interviewing, we figured we would start with someone who had become a post-revolutionary 1950s and 1960s labor model because she was very good at farm work and a champion cotton grower. <clears throat> Excuse me. She was a woman named Cao Zhuxiang. And Cao Zhuxiang had grown up very poor. Um, I think she was... I can't remember her exact birth date now, but somewhere in the teens. And she had been married at a relatively young age. And she was married to someone who was almost immediately conscripted into the army, uh, came home long enough to father two children, then got ill and died, leaving her as a widow with two young children in the early 1940s. So his frequent absences from home and then his death necessitated that she learn how to do the complete range of farming skills. So this is before the revolution. And that she go outside and plow and harrow and rake and weed and harvest and so forth. And this was a time when, although lots of women were out in the fields, especially during the busy season, for a woman to take on certain kinds of tasks like plowing was considered... Uh, unfortunate for the crops. There were all kinds of beliefs associated with women's appropriate role. And then for a woman to be outside in the fields every day all the time was to expose herself, given the, the number of marauding soldiers and bandits, was to expose herself to sexual danger. So respectable women were not supposed to be outside. In, in fact, many of them were most of the time. But they didn't it didn't bring them social standing. It was a way of saying, my family is poor, my family is desperate, that's why I'm out here. And she talks about 
going out at night to plow because she was also ashamed that her farming skill wasn't so great and that she couldn't plow a straight furrow, learning, getting some protection from her brothers who would come over from her home village to help her out and teach her and so forth. So she also refused to remarry. Partly there was a lot of chaos in those years in the in the 1940s. Partly she had a son and that meant she had delivered a son for her husband's lineage and that son had a claim on land in the village and she feared that if she remarried that um, her her dead husband's kinsmen would move this kid out of access to certain property rights. It was also considered virtuous for a widow not to remarry. This is a much older kind of notion of virtue and to stay and sacrifice herself and uh, devote all of her labor to the bringing up of her children and the carrying on of her husband's family line. So the revolution arrives, and then uh, local teams of activists are sent in to develop local leadership and to uh, also try to get women out of the house to work in the fields on a more regular basis and teach them how to be skilled farmers. And they, these outside activists look around and they see Cao Zhuxiang, who's by this time quite good at plowing and knows everything about growing cotton and various other crops. And they recruited her to be a women's leader. And initially she wasn't interested at all. She actually took off and went back to her, her uh, natal village, her brother's house, to get away from the people that wanted her to stand for election. But eventually, because she was one of the most capable farmers in the village, and because she was a virtuous widow about whom there had never been a whiff of sexual gossip. Um, she kept getting elected to be head of the women, and then it, later, as agriculture was collectivized, actually head of her local producers co-op and later head of her production team and production brigade. And eventually, she became a regional model for Northwest China as a champion cotton grower. Now, along the way... And we tried to ask her about this. It was a very funny moment because Gao Xiaoxian said to her, did you ever think about remarrying after the revolution? There's this new notion of marriage. It's companionate marriage. You have some control over it. Wouldn't it be good to have a helpmate? And she said, I never thought about that. Anytime anyone asked me what I um, was going to do, I would say, don't even bring up that topic with me. And a lot of it had to do, as I said, with not wanting to compromise her children and particularly her son and their standing in the village. But it was also the case that she had managed to get by on her own all of those years, that um, companionate marriage was not a notion that had any cultural force in that village at the time, and particularly to people of her generation, that her own marriage hadn't been a marriage like that. There isn't a whole lot of evidence that had, it brought her much of any kind of satisfaction and that she saw herself as having gotten through that phase of life and was therefore, in some ways, because she was a widow and her kids were now older and she was somewhat unencumbered, it made her more available for collective social projects of the kind that were of interest to the state at the time. So it turns out having these feudal virtues, like being a widow who refuses to remarry, turns out to be quite compatible with local revolutionary leadership in a rural context, which to me indicates one of the many ways that when state ideology hits the ground and gets entangled with local practices and deeply felt local beliefs, what emerges can be very surprising. And one of the things that happens during these very... Oh, hello? Yes, I'm here. Okay, getting a little feedback. 
one of the interesting things that happens, of course, during these early years is that there is sort of a top-down effort at marriage reform. Um, and maybe just to sort of contextualize the discussion of companionate marriage, of course, the, the, the marriages you're talking about were typically arranged, um, sometimes when the girls were still children and so on. So um, you talk a little bit about this sort of top-down effort at marriage reform, the introduction of divorce and so on, and how that, that how that's interpreted on the ground. And I wonder if you could say a little about that. Yes. Well, so one of the first things the new state did was to pass a marriage law in 1950 that said there will be no more what they called buy-and-sell marriages, marriages that are also commercial transactions. There will be no more sending girl ch children to the families of their future husband to be raised as a child daughter-in-law and married off um, when, they, when they reach sexual maturity. Men and women need to be able to choose their own partners. And in doing this, the state was carrying forward an agenda that um, had, had been an item of discussion in urban China, at least since the early 20th century, and had been a kind of article of faith of the Chinese Communist Party since its inception um, in the 1920s, the early 1920s. But when that agenda for free choice companionate marriage hits the countryside, it, it, it's not a very stable situation. For one thing, households in the countryside were also units of production. That is, people didn't move around as individuals. They lived in households, mainly farming households. And the process of bringing in a wife, women married out of their home villages into their husbands' villages, the process of bringing in a wife was protracted and expensive, usually involved the paying of um, a bride price and certain kinds of gifts to the woman's family, um, and also meant acquiring her labor, her productive labor and reproductive labor. So... Uh, one measure of distress in the countryside in the 1920s and 30s and 40s was that many men could not afford to marry. And those that did, uh, if they were poor farmers, their families had saved for many, many years to scrape together the wherewithal to bring in a bride for a son so that the family line could be carried on. And often the way they financed this was they would marry off a daughter and get a certain amount of money from that that they could then use to bring in a bride for the son. So with this kind of very complicated financial transaction um, being central to the reproduction of households, if you just kind of stride in from outside and say, okay, everybody shall have free marriage and anyone who doesn't want to be in a marriage can walk, all of these families, not only husbands, but fathers-in-law and mothers-in-law who had spent many, many years accumulating the funds to be able to allow their family to reproduce, saw suddenly the potential collapse of the world they'd spent years creating. And there are, of course, emotional dimensions to this, too. But a lot of it really has to do with um, the centrality of the household to the way agriculture and social life was organized at that time. So people came around and announced the marriage law, and there were all kinds of illustrated comic books illustrating the marriage law. Comic, not in the sense of funny, but, you know, graphic propaganda materials for an audience that really couldn't read very much, um, and there were plays about it and so forth. But the divorce rate was not huge. Uh, local administrators, local village officials generally didn't like this law. They saw it as introducing a lot of social conflict. Uh, many of them were afraid their wives would leave, although some of them took advantage of the law to ditch their wives and get younger, more educated wives. 
um, so that the people that ended up benefiting from this the most, in some cases, were men in some positions of power, and also younger women who had not yet married but whose families had arranged an engagement for them. Uh, cutting off an engagement, breaking off an engagement, was a hard thing to do socially, but it was not nearly as hard as trying to initiate a divorce. And so some of the interviews we did were with women who were not yet married but were in their late teens at the time of the revolution and who were very got very involved in land reform and other kinds of social change and in the process of that just decided they wanted to have more to say about what happened with themselves than conventional arranged marriages would allow and that they didn't want to marry someone they'd never met before the wedding day who their parents and the other party's parents and the matchmaker had decided about. And what the revolution did for them was give them an alternative social set of reference and also some support to break off these engagements. So there's a certain amount of activity that goes on there. But with young married women, even ones who were extremely active in land reform and in collectivization and who saw their lives change very much with the revolution, uh, only in pretty extreme cases did they initiate divorces, cases of profound incompatibility or sometimes cases where both the husband and the in-laws were, and these people would all be in one household, a multi-generational household, were opposed to their being involved in any kind of political activity or even being seen outside the home. Then these women could go to the local authorities for support and say, look, I, I was married against my will into a feudal household and I want out. But, you know, they would then have to go back to their parents' village and become part of that household again until they could find another household, uh, hopefully with a companion, more to their liking, because this is not a place where individuals went off and lived in apartments. It's rural villages where all social life is organized by family. This, um, this generation uh, of people who are in their teens, really, is kind of the almost a kind of a zero hour, right? These are the ones who are becoming adults at this moment of change. Uh, I wonder if uh, we can talk a little bit about the business of family and motherhood. You have this very interesting chapter about uh, midwifery and childbearing, where, again, the kind of before and after um, matters a great deal, uh, but so does the tension between state efforts to reform midwifery, improve survival rates, and um, local rural practices. Uh, there's, there's both a kind of a, a movement of modernization, but also also some tension. And I wonder, it's, it's a fascinating chapter in just thinking about, about uh, the role of science and, um, and village practices and, and women's own experience. Not only did babies die, but women died. And um, women of the younger generation had memories of, mother, of mothers and aunts dying. And, and were, you know, there was reason to, to worry about modernizing the act of childbirth. Um, and it's, it, was, it is just such an interesting chapter. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about it. Sure. Well, one of the main things that the state did... You know, my, one of my initial questions is, what difference does the revolution make? One of the major things the state did that did make a difference in women's daily life was it undertook a big campaign to try to reform midwifery. Uh, prior to that, although the previous government, the nationalist government, had also had a similar campaign, it had not been very effective, partly because the political situation was so unstable at that time. 
Prior to that, uh, in Chinese villages, basically women delivered their children either on their own or with the assistance of a family member or sometimes with the assistance of a village midwife who'd been trained by the village midwife before her. And as it turns out, often these women were extremely skilled in handling difficult births, breech births, transverse presentations, and so forth. Sometimes they weren't so skilled. But in any case, everyone was dependent on them. And the one thing that they didn't do reliably was when they cut the cord, they didn't always disinfect. And so one of the main causes of infant mortality at that point was what was called uh, neonatal tetanus, which is basically an infection that comes on four days or six days. It was called 4-6 fever, actually, was one of the local names. An infection that comes on from... Uh, having had the cord cut with something that's not sterile. So the state goes in, and this is one of those moments where they're not trying to overturn everything that came before. They're actually very consciously building on this. They understand that they don't have the kind of healthcare infrastructure that can get hospitals or even medical stations into every Chinese village. They don't have enough trained personnel. But what they do have is the wherewithal to collect uh, old midwives from various villages and give them a retraining course about sterilization. And then on top of that, to start training newer, younger midwives uh, with, with more serious scientific training. So what ends up happening in the first 10 years of the People's Republic, by the late 1950s, infant mortality rates had fallen very dramatically. And it also meant that for many women, the experience of childbirth changed, that that there was uh, more of a source of support and um, more, uh, it, it, it was less dangerous. It was considered less dangerous. However, it was still, with all of that, considered a very polluting, uh, liminal, scary moment in a life. And one of the ways that that had been obvious for many, many centuries before this was that there are all kinds of ghost stories and other tales associated with weird transformations between the the human world and the spirit world that may take place around the act of childbirth. And one of the most interesting stories that we got told um, was about a midwife who'd been one of these very skilled pre-1949 midwives who, who had undergone retraining after 1949 and kept delivering babies. And she had died some years before we arrived in the village. But the story of her death, as it was told to us by a woman who'd been a young political activist and who by this time, of course, is older, uh, she said, before the midwife died, she took me aside and told me the following story, that one night she'd been called out to deliver a baby in the middle of the night, and she grabbed her box with a red cross on it, went out and delivered the kid, and then uh, asked for some water to wash her hands, and the, the the young man, the young father, said, we don't have any water here, but you can wipe your hand on this stone. So she did, and then she went home and discovered that she'd left her medical kit, her Red Cross box, behind her. So she sent her husband out to look for it the next day, and when he went out and looked, um, he came back and he, he found that, that um, he found it on a gravestone, um, on which there was also a kind of bloody handprint. And she realized at that moment she understood exactly what had happened. She had delivered a baby for a ghost, and that was a tomb, and that was her handprint on the gravestone. 
And shortly thereafter, she developed a high fever and died. And the story goes, this is a story being told to us, not by the person it happened to, obviously. The way the story got told to us by this former young activist was she died of midwifery, but she actually didn't want anyone to know that this that this had happened to her because she knew if she started talking about having delivered a ghost baby that people would laugh at her and criticize her for not being scientific enough and having futile ideas. And to us, this tells you something about, you know, a revolution happens um, and it even transforms lots of stuff about village life, but it's an extremely uneven process. It's not like you wake up one morning and the world is made anew. And there are many, many layers of very powerful stories and ways of understanding the world and ways of coping with these kinds of liminal, dangerous moments that remain long after they've been formally denounced as futile and supposedly replaced by science. So the idea that this woman didn't want to talk about it, but that it was powerful enough to induce such um, distress in her that she then promptly ran a high fever and died, tells you something not literally about were there ghosts or did she really die of midwifery, um, but about how two different ways of understanding childbirth can coexist, two different kinds of temporality can really jostle uneasily against each other in the same village and in the stories and memories of the people that live there. You know, it, it was a fascinating story, and um, it it also then ties into, of course, the larger life of the village, right? Because here are these women then of childbearing age who are also kind of straddling um, these you know, different temporalities, as you say, you know, very much appreciating anything that will make childbearing safer, um, but, but not fully of a scientific world. One of the unintended consequences, maybe, of the improvement of... Um, of maternal and neonatal care is a better survival rate um, for, for babies. And what seems to end up happening here is that uh, babies survive and then women get saddled with larger families than they really necessarily wish to have. Yes. At, at precisely the moment they're being pushed into the fields for full-time agricultural work. Uh, and that seems like you have very interesting discussions, both of the just the grueling labor that this involved, but also I found some very interesting discussions of um, of emotion and um, the things that surprised you about how mothers related to their children and spoke about their experiences mothers years later um, that caused you to reflect on what it must have meant to be a mother of several children in the 1950s. Yes, well, it wasn't several children, as you just said. That was the problem. That that formerly, uh, the reproductive strategy of poor farming households was get pregnant as often as you can and have as many kids as possible because a certain number of them are going to die. So you'd have possibly ten births. Eight of those would be live births. Two kids would survive to adulthood. Now people continued um, getting pregnant and having kids frequently, and of course the wherewithal for even providing methods of birth control in Chinese villages didn't exist until until several decades into the People's Republic of China um, to provide things on a large scale. Um, but they'd have 10 kids and eight or nine of them would live. And this is in a time where housework has not been socialized, okay? Agriculture is being collectivized um, throughout the 1950s, and the size of the collectives are getting 
bigger and bigger until finally, briefly, during the Great Leap Forward, they become quite huge. But in general, housework is in not in any way collectivized, nor is there a kind of manufacturing sector that can underwrite it by providing ready-made clothing or even ready-made cloth, uh, ready-made shoes, prepared foods, or anything like that. So at the precise moment, these women are being mobilized to go work in the field in production teams and production brigades, and in fact have to do so to earn work points in order to support their families, they're also in a situation where they need to be making the clothing and shoes that their kids need, often starting with growing the cotton, spinning it, and weaving it. Um, and none of this is recognized as part of the workday. So they're expected to go work in the fields, and they need to go work in the fields in order to earn work points, which are converted to both grain and cash at the end of the year when the harvest is sold, um, or a portion of the harvest is sold to the state. Um, and grain quotas are fulfilled. Um, but then they'd have to go home and cook, and then they would have stay up most of the night making cloth and clothing and shoes, which are cloth shoes, and shoe soles, which are made out of all kinds of layers and layers of cotton wadding painstakingly sewed together for kids who then promptly outgrow them, you know, because the, the, there's often a kid every year or every two years um, for quite a long time. So the memory of many of these women, which is, of course, how we have access to any of these stories, is often a kind of blurred memory of several decades of exhaustion, quite literally, from not getting enough sleep because they're staying up and doing needlework, um, taking needlework to political meetings, taking needlework to the fields to sew between breaks, and so forth. Um, and the state of their relationships with their children, which is kind of hard to get at. People talk a lot about this period in terms of childcare disasters, you know, needing to be in the fields and leaving all the kids kind of um, tied together with a string around, uh, rope around their waist tied to the, to the brick platform bed, um, which is the main item of furniture in many Chinese households. Um, coming home and, you know, leaving the kids bare-bottomed and coming home and cleaning up whatever they had deposited uh, on the bed at the end of the day and then letting the kids out a little bit, but just piecing together childcare. And we actually found women saying to us, look, the state tried to control everything at that point. It controlled how much grain we were supposed to grow, how much we were supposed to eat, what we were supposed to do in the field. Why didn't they get in there and control childbirth? They never controlled childbirth. And here I've got, you know, eight kids, six, son, six, six daughters and two sons, and um, it, it was a really terrible moment that way, and I don't understand why the state didn't get in there. So then you get this big irony, which any, anyone who has um, followed events in the People's Republic over the last, um, in the 1980s, 1990s, the last 30 years really, knows that there has been a policy in place called the Single Child Family Policy, um, in which people are supposed to have one kid. Now, in the countryside, that's never been true. Um, people have might have had one child only in the cities, but in the countryside, it's been extremely important to have at least one son, since daughters marry out, and uh, maybe to have more than one to produce as much able-bodied labor as possible, because the, in the Chinese countryside, under the post-Mao reforms, they've now gone back to household farming. So there's been this situation in the 80s and 90s and the 2000s where there's been a collision between the state agenda, which says let's try to limit 
um, the macro demographic variable here, the absolute size of the population, and, and farmers uh, under the new household farming system who have very good reasons to want to have some kids around who survive to adulthood, who can do the farming and who can be their form of social security. And in this situation, the women who have been put in charge of trying to persuade women of childbearing age to terminate over quota pregnancies are these very women, the women in the age group that I've been interviewing. That is, women who had eight or ten kids themselves and who were completely exhausted by it. And then, as middle-aged women, got put in charge of, of birth planning work in their villages and given quotas. You know, your village can't have any over-quota births. And what's not usually noted about this, you know, there's been a lot written about the often quite terrible consequences for young women, a certain amount of sterilization, forced abortions, um, spousal abuse, because the, if, if someone has a girl child, uh, she will often be blamed for it, even though the Y chromosome is actually provided by the husband, and so forth. And all of that discussion, one thing that has not really been noted is that this group of women that I interviewed, that age group, the middle-aged women who themselves had had to cope with raising eight or ten kids, really believe very strongly that limited childbearing is better for the mother and the child. And they believe that viscerally out of their own experience of incredible hardship and not sleeping for several decades and so forth. And so they were quite willing um, to try to persuade women to try to limit the number of kids they wanted to have and to accompany them to the county seat to have their tubes tied, accompany them home, make sure they got something to eat afterwards. They saw it as a form of um, work not only for the national good, but for the good of these younger women. For the younger women who didn't want to have nine or ten kids, they wanted to have maybe two or three or four, um, it was an incredible intrusion because they're coming of age in the 80s and 90s and 2000s uh, at a moment where farming has reverted to being by the household and where they have been brought up in the new world that those middle-aged women help bring into being, where young women have a certain amount of control over their own lives and, and, and don't expect to be just childbearing machines who have their marriages arranged by their parents and have no say over what happens in their lives. And they didn't like being told what to do, either by the state or by these middle-aged women. So it, it, the, the single-child family policy, the birth planning policy, often gets played out in a kind of generation gap between older women and younger women. And it has to do with the formative experiences that these older women had as mothers and the kind of exhaustion and hardship that it induced. Yeah, this top, this issue of, um, of how these women are remembering things and reflecting on them decades later, um, is important at so many moments, but this is one of the places where it really, um, you know, comes out of the realm of sort of self-narration, uh, to to the arena of their own later participation in public life um, in this in this sphere that that then becomes part of the next generation's story and it's just fascinating um, it, when you when you talk about these women's own experience one thing that of course is so important is is this dual task of of agriculture and needlework and um, 
this seems to be really an important thing going on here that we're sort of moving from a division of labor where women are responsible for needlework and men, at least in principle, are largely responsible for agriculture. Um, and of course, women are now supposed to come into agriculture, but no one thinks to relieve them of the work of, 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 of making cloth and making clothing. And when we move towards the Great Leap Forward, in your telling, this seems to be very, very important. We sort of move to what you're calling a feminization of agriculture that then has profound economic implications in a sense for freeing up men for other tasks. Um, this, your book, in a way, is kind of bracketed by two eras of an um, immense suffering, right? The, the era of the civil wars and famines, and then at the, at the back end, the great leap, leap forward of the famines that are associated with that. Um, but that's, that's an important moment, too, um, where we do see some, some efforts to communalize, um, to collectivize at least some aspects of household life, in particular food preparation. Uh, and, your, your informants had a lot to say about that because they, recog- they, they recognized that as kind of hard times coming again, at least temporarily. Yes. Well, it doesn't start out that way. The Great Leap Forward yeah. starts out as this huge utopian experiment. And, you know, a lot has been written about the conflicts in the top leadership uh, and Mao's feeling that collectivization could be pushed farther and faster and that the peasants would actually be in favor of this. I think from the point of view of uh, village people, what the Great Leap promised them at the outset was unimagined visions of modernity. You know, there were all these jingles like there will be uh, multi-story houses with electric lights upstairs and down and the grain will be milled without having to use an ox and um, just just laying out all of these things about having enough to eat and enough to wear and uh, a little more leeway in living conditions that that really had the force of a of a visionary dream for peasants so um initially at the outset people were enthusiastic about this and the idea that everybody should go out and try to um pan for iron ore and melt down all of the metal that they had and smelt steel and in backyard furnaces and catapult china into modernity um it had a certain purchase. People were enthusiastic about it, at least briefly. Um, but then, you know, there are a lot of um, there are a lot of concrete local difficulties. Men and some women get sent off to work on public works projects, dams may, mainly, but also some railroad construction, some mines, and other things uh, that are very far from home. And the people that are left behind are suddenly responsible for all of the farming. And oftentimes who that is is the married women, the single people and, and, and all of the men get sent off to work on these other projects. And in the first year of the Great Leap Forward in 1958, in many areas, but including the area where I interviewed in Shanxi province, there were bumper harvests and, and the grain was literally rotting in the fields. And so women come out and for the first time they become completely responsible for agriculture. In recognition of this, there is public discussion and some local attempts to collectivize food preparation. People have melted down their kitchen pots to use them to smelt steel, but there are collective dining halls that are set up. And this becomes a piece of this very short-lived vision of a communist utopia. The idea is you work for a day and 
then you eat as much as you want. And farmers had never, ever gotten to eat as much as they want in this region in northwest China where the land is not that fertile and the climate is not that forgiving. So um, there is initially a certain amount of enthusiasm about this, but it very quickly devolves into a form of labor control where if you don't go out and work that day, you don't get to eat. It's not an unlimited social benefit. And then... Um, there's some bad weather, there's some bad harvest, the, the um, um, amount of grain the next year is not a bumper harvest, but the main problem is um, because people in every locality are still reporting that no one wants to look bad, they're still reporting that they're having incredible grain harvests, um, the state goes in and is still procuring a very high percentage of it. And I think there's There's been a certain amount of scholarship that suggests that there's a lot of bad faith there. Every provincial leader wants to look good to Mao. Mao wants to turn a blind eye to what's going on because they're hoping nationally to use the surplus from agriculture to fund industrialization. And the net effect is that way too much is extracted from the countryside. And then there's very little to eat in these dining halls, and people start to starve. And the area where I was interviewing partly because the provincial leadership was more sensible than that of several of the provinces surrounding it. Uh, there was tremendous hardship, there were shortages, there was malnutrition, but there were not widespread deaths. But in several of the neighboring provinces where provincial leaders really wanting to please the center kept on sending more out, um, there, were, there was a massive starvation. And, and everybody in this area knows those stories and has opinions about it. In the area where I was, um, the collective dining halls become sites of hoarding, stealing, concealing, fighting, um, arguments about whether the kids are being fed or not. And then the dining halls pretty much are disbanded and people are left to go back home and there's, there's very little to eat. And at that point, women's capacity to spin and weave and make cloth, and this is not a national story, this is a regional story, I don't know what happened else, elsewhere, becomes really crucial in family survival strategies because uh, women go back to spinning and weaving um, and they take whatever they've produced and they take it up into the mountains into settlements where the Great Leap had not been as thoroughly implemented. It's very hard to collectivize agriculture if you've got two families living on a mountaintop and then the next two families are, you know, um, a deep gorge away. And so in the mountains, people still had some grain. And the women that I interviewed took the cloth that they wove and they took it to the mountains and they traded it for grain, corn and other things, and brought it down and saved their families from starvation. So that was a moment where um, the fact that they still had cloth production skills really saved their families' lives. But the longer-term... Um, uh, consequence of the Cultural Revolution is that men go off to work on these big projects. They don't stay away that long, but when they come back, they don't go back in this area into basic level agriculture, unskilled agriculture. By this time, the women have taken over basic level farming. The men, they build some irrigation works. They go to work in small scale rural uh, tractor repair plants or chemical fertilizer plants. Some of them become labor supervisors of farmers, but increasingly basic level farming is done by women. And, uh, you know, the conventional story is that agriculture became feminized in China starting in the 1980s after the death of Mao and with the current era of economic reforms. 
But actually in the area that I was studying, and I suspect in many other areas as well, agriculture became basically feminized by the late 1950s, the early 1960s. And it did free up male labor to go do other, usually higher status, better remunerated kinds of things. But then you really do get a situation where people are working in the fields all day, uh, women, not only to supplement their family income, but to keep basic level agriculture going. And then they're going home and doing needlework at night. And to me, that's the one of the great untold stories of China's economic development is that so much of it is undergirded by uh, undercompensated, um, uh, undervalued, and sometimes completely occluded varieties of female labor. You know, one of the things that you talk about is the ways that women's narration of their own stories differs, not surprisingly in a way, from official narrations. But you you cast this often... um, in terms of thinking about their sense of time, they're not thinking, like you said at the beginning of our interview, they're not thinking about the big campaigns. They're thinking about perhaps this blur of time when they were taking care of lots of kids and farming and doing needlework in the middle of the night. Or they're thinking of the years particular children were born or died. And I wonder if you can talk some about, about these insights you had about their sense of time and maybe what you might call official time. When, when, does, when does feudal life, when does the old society end? When does the new society begin? Right. Well, the state, uh, as I said before when I was talking about feudalism, makes this very powerful language available within which people can narrate their past. And one of the um, kinds of state language that gets used often in these speaking bitterness narratives I was talking about earlier, contrasts the old society with the new society. And the old society is supposed to be any time before 1949, and the new society is after 1949, after the establishment of the People's Republic of China. But women often remember it differently. They get the term the old society and the new society. They understand that the old society was bad and the new society is better. But sometimes they say, well, the old society, that lasted until after the end of the Great Leap Famine in the 1960s. Or they'll say, the old society, that happened, uh, that lasted until the beginning of the economic reforms in the 1980s. So by shifting the goalposts around, by shifting the the dates around, they're actually doing a kind of, I don't think it's exactly conscious, but it's not unconscious either, critique of the state and state terminology. They're saying our material conditions did not change as much earlier as they have changed later, and we still had enormous hardship in that period. Now, I don't know. We interviewed some men in the same age group. I don't know whether there was an extremely systematic gender difference in the way men would have talked about time, Um, and I can't tell because... Many more women um, in the age groups we were interested in were still alive than men. If we would go into a village and we would say, tell us the names of everybody over the age of 70, it would come back, you know, with, with a couple dozen women and two men. So even if we had been setting out to interview uh, equal numbers of each, which, you know, we were more interested in women's labor and domestic labor and so forth, but even if we'd wanted to do a more even-handed study, Um, we weren't doing this interviewing in the 1970s. We were doing it in the 1990s and 2000s, and we were at the mercy of who was still around. 
So it does seem to me there might be a divergence between what I call the campaign time of the state, that is, time organized according to these big state initiatives, um, and popular time in the rural areas in general. But I do know that for women in particular, because their daily lives looked different from those of men, because domestic labor was especially needlework, was primarily their responsibility, because they ended up with a lot of the responsibility for agriculture um, as of the late 1950s, I do know that their sense of campaign time, uh, official state time, was extremely fuzzy and that they would, without any trouble at all, just scramble the order of things, forget about a couple of decades, you know, skip directly from the 19, uh, late 1950s to the early 1980s and only be able to answer stuff about the 60s and 70s if you ask them very specific questions. Those are their peak childbearing years and their... Um, the years where they got the least sleep, and, and, and they're all one big blur. Um, so I do know that women organized time differently from official state time, and that they were extremely precise about it um, on one measure, and that was if you wanted to find out exactly when something happened, you would ask, well, when was your first son born? Well, when was your second son born? And they organized it by, uh, you know, calendar years mean very little to them. They're not, they're, they're still mainly using the lunar calendar, and, they, and calendar years just don't come up. But year of the dragon, year of the rat, year of the ox, year, and so forth, all of those mean something to them. So my son was born in the year of the dragon, and this year he is. So you could tell which year of the dragon. It comes around every 12 years. You could tell which one it was. If you ask them, how old was your kid when the Great Leap happened? How old was your kid during the land reform? Suddenly their notion of time would get extremely precise, and you could put things in, in, in a very precise order, which was not the way their memory organized it unless you brought up the Chinese zodiac signs. Then, then, then they found something that they could hang the order on. And there's this, um, the book includes pictures, including photographs of some of your interview partners. And it also includes a photo of um, a sort of a posting of the zodiac signs and your effort to organize stories, to use those as a kind of an aid that's, that's, um, for the women. That's right. And I, I don't know whether, I mean, partly they organized it that way because we introduced the zodiac signs mm -hmm. and, and asked them about it. I don't know if they would have narrated it that way left to their own devices. And that brings up a kind of bigger methodological question. You know, when you go in and do an oral history, uh, you're partly asking people to narrate their own lives, to, to think of their lives as a narrative. I, I don't know about you. I would have a lot of trouble narrating my own life in that way with any sort of precision and level of detail. Um, and it is true even in a culture you know, these women are mostly, they're in a storytelling culture. They're in a, they're not, uh, most of them have very rudimentary literacy, which they got as adults and, and then lost most of because they didn't use it in their daily lives. A lot of stuff is transmitted orally. Um, but, but still, um, it's, it, it's a, it, it's a fuzzy kind of drifting thing. And so we had to pay a lot of attention to what kind of prompts do we give them that don't uh, organize the narrative for them rather than letting us understand what it was they remember. You know, if we provide too many signposts, then we've provided a whole framework and then we discover they have our framework. That's not very interesting. If we, if we provide no signposts, 
sometimes people would go right into a, a long impassioned account of how they got cheated in a business deal five years ago and they're still upset about it, you know, and not tell us anything about the earlier time period. So we spent a lot of time experimenting with different uh, question asking techniques and then trying to stand back and get out of the way and pay attention to what people told us when we didn't know enough to ask. Those are usually the really important things. You know, one of the, when you um, sort of when you examined your own interviewing and the uh, what came out of it and what didn't come out of it, one thing you comment on is this question of kind of interiority and internal life, and and our hope, perhaps as historians or as biographers, that if you sort of wait long enough, you'll get someone's internal life. And there, it seems that no matter what technique you took, you ended up having questions about whether that was a sensible approach. Yeah, well, this mostly came out in our attempt to talk to people who had been official labor models. I mentioned that we started with Sao Jusyang, who was who had become a cotton-growing labor model. That was the virtuous widow. But we interviewed a number of others, and they're very lively, interesting women, some of them, uh, and they have very vivid memories of such things as going to Beijing to meet Chairman Mao at a, or be greeted by Chairman Mao at a, at a large Congress of Labor Models and so forth. Um, but what becomes pretty clear in all of this is that in order to become a labor model, you didn't just emerge as somebody who could talk eloquently about the best way to top off cotton plants and apply fertilizer and so forth, that what usually happened was a team of activists from the Women's Federation or uh, some other government agency would descend on a village looking for someone who was a skilled farmer uh, that could be used as a model. And then they would essentially, it's a kind of Pygmalion-like thing, they would teach that woman to talk about what she was doing, and sometimes they would compose, they would take what she told them and compose jingles and rhymes and so forth and inspirational stories and produce materials that were meant to disseminate, actually, in, in many cases, the highly technical knowledge these women had to other people by putting a human face on it. So this human face that gets put on it is actually a kind of group production, which involves the intervention of all of these um, women from the Women's Federation, uh, the woman herself, um, people who write down everything that she says, people that answer her letters for her since she's usually illiterate, and so forth. And the idea that um, what you're getting when you get these stories is is uh, the actual interiority of these women. You know, if you look at the process by which the stories are produced, now it's much more of a collective production. But then even beyond that, what I found really interesting was that when you tried to talk to these women about what were the most inspiring moments in your life, what's the thing that made the deepest impression on you or moved you the most, um, they often quite completely inhabited the labor model role and rhetoric that had been co-created by them and all of these women's federation activists. You know, that became the deepest truth of their life. And it did make me wonder, you know, what is this habit that we have of running around looking for a private self that is somehow intact, that's distinct from what's presented publicly, and that is the real truth of the self. And of course, I'm not the only person to ever ask this question. I think it is the thrust of, in fact, a lot of post-structuralist and feminist critique that happened 
over the last 25 years. But in the case of these rural women, it was really very striking that, you know, you better not assume that you're getting to the core of, of someone's self when they're telling you these stories, because otherwise you're only going to flag those things that most closely resemble your own notion of what you think a self should be. And, you know, you'll, you'll look around everywhere and you'll find some slightly exoticized version of you, yourself, the interviewer, the historian, and that's very bad practice. So it's just a tension in the work between the fact that these women are spectacular storytellers and what they're often revealing with the greatest emotion is not that which you would expect to find. It's an interesting book in part because it does blend sort of revealing this history that we know so little about and at the same time raising really useful methodological questions for anybody involved in oral history. Let me ask what you're, um, what you're working on now. What can we look forward to? Oh, I wish I could tell you what I was working on. Oh, <laughs> I mean, one thing that happens in the wake of a 15-year project is you have to clear out your head and do a little reading and thinking. Actually, what I'm working on now is, is a textbook because I was asked um, to do a textbook on, on women in recent Chinese history. And I realized um, I first got into this project, the Gender of Memory Project, looking for a kind of teaching material I didn't have. And now I've finished this huge fat book and I'm still um, looking for a kind of teaching material that I don't have, which goes like this. I, I would like to write a book that can be used alongside more conventionally organized books that says, look, at every moment in uh, the last couple centuries of Chinese history, if you tilt the lens a little bit and make and foreground gender, how, do, how does this big narrative look different? And I don't think gender is the only lens one can use. And even within gender, as, as I found in this work, generation and region and uh, class and many other things make a huge difference. Um, I want to systematically try to trace through the question of um, who had this revolution and all of the events associated with it. How have they played out differentially depending upon who people are and where they're located. And gender, I still think, is one very useful lens through which to do this. So I figure by the time I, I, I finish sorting out the textbook, maybe by the end of next year, I will have another thought in my head for a major research project. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to take me that long. Well, I think the textbook will be enormously useful to an awful lot of people out there. I hope so. <laughs> I'm sure there are a lot of people looking forward to it. This has been just fascinating. I recommend the book um, very highly, The Gender of Memory, Rural Women and China's Collective Past by Gail, Gail Hirschhatter. Uh, it's been wonderful to talk to you, and I look forward to, to reading what you have next. Thank you, Lisa. It's been a real pleasure. <laughs> Bye-bye. We've been talking to Gail Hirschhatter author of The Gender of Memory, Rural Women and China's Collective Past, which came out with University of California Press in 2011. I'm Lisa Heinemann, co-host of New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies. Please join us next time. Thanks for listening.